Well, let's welcome Volvo. You guys over there, cheer too. I see y'all. It's so weird because you guys can see me and I can't see you. Not talking to you guys, talking to them over there. I'm, I'm normally over there, and so it's weird. What's up? Hey, there's my wife, the Owens. Brian, hey guys, how are y'all doing? All right, so this is funny. That, this is weird. Okay, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today, so turn there. And uh, we're going to camp out there today. You probably will remember that old epic tale of the Odyssey. Remember uh, Odysseus, he wanted to uh, hear the sound of the sirens. He'd heard the tales of the sirens. He knew that if the ship traveled near their island, that they would hear the singing and that they would lure these sailors in close. And then when they got too close, they would shipwreck and die. But Odysseus, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to hear it. And so, uh, got, having advice from Circe, he plugged uh, his sailors, his men's ears with beeswax, and he had them tie him to the mast. And he told them not to listen to any of his commands, and so that as they traveled close to the island, he could hear that forbidden beauty of the siren's call and taste it and live to tell the tale. You see, temptation is often like the call of a siren. It lures us in. It entices us. We hear its beauty and wonder, and it calls to us, and we want it, not knowing that it calls us to destroy us. You'll remember Saturday morning cartoons as a kid. Looney Tunes was one of my favorites, and uh, I remember anytime Bugs Bunny would get into a little bit of a pickle and he kind of have a situation to think through, always there would be a little devil that would appear on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder, and he'd listen to both of them, and one would say, do it, do it, and the other would say, no, no, and he'd eventually flick one of them off and go with uh, either the devil or the angel and kind of do what they said. And guys, this morning, I want us to realize that that reality is far more real than you might suspect. If we had special magical spiritual glasses that we could all put on right now to see the spiritual world, I think we would be actually a little terrified and shocked that we would see in this room angels and demons going to battle over every one of your hearts even now in this moment. I think we'd be scared and terrified what we actually saw. You see, I think sometimes that we think that we're just people who struggle. We just are people, and we fail sometimes. Well, it's just natural, right? We don't think that we're actually being tempted by demons. And if that's what you think, if you think that you just struggle, they have you right where they want you, ignorant of what's going on all around you. See, every day, every moment, there are demonic forces that are tugging at you, that are calling you, that are trying to woo you away from Jesus. Every day, every time you send your kids to the school, every time your son goes up to his room at night with Google in the palm of his hand, every day that you go to work, every moment, every day, there is a battle being waged against you. Because the very moment that you came to Christ and believed in Christ for the first time. You picked your side. You put your allegiance with Jesus, and so now you have entered into the war that has been waged since the beginning of time itself. 
You've entered into it. And so every time a demon tempts you, there is more going on than to see if they can make you fall or stumble. There is more going on than just a psychological attack of are you going to choose this or that. You see, when you are tempted, it is an attack on Christ and on his kingdom. When you are tempted, it is an attack against the very kingdom of God You see, 2,000 years ago, the demons tried to destroy our Savior, and today, they try to destroy his followers. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, the devil is like a lion looking for someone to devour. You see, the demonic forces want to wreak havoc in your life. They want to destroy your life. They want to paralyze you with guilt and shame that would weigh you down. They want to make you inadvertently work for them against the Lord. They want to make you ineffective at advancing the kingdom of God. Every one of us in this room faces temptation. And if we're honest, every one of us in this room have fallen temptation many times. I had a brother ask me this week or come to me this week and he said, he said, he said man, I got to tell you, Brent, I am just, I'm being tempted a lot and I'm really struggling. I said, man, I get it. Me too. He said, no, 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 Brent, you don't understand. He said, I'm being tempted to do really bad things. I'm being tempted to do really bad things and a part of me wants to do it. I said, oh, yeah, me too. He said, no, no, Brett, you're not getting it. I am being tempted to do these really bad things, and I think, I feel like I'm going to give in, and I'm going to do it, and I don't know how much longer I can fight. I said, oh, me too. You see, temptation is normal in the Christian life. Every one of us are going to be tempted I had a person tell me one time that if you're not being tempted, then you should worry because the devil and his demons aren't wasting their time on you. Our Savior was tempted 2,000 years ago, and you will be too. You see, sometimes, though, people think that if they're tempted, that they're actually not Christians because it means something. But all of us have fallen temptation, and all of us, and many times, have been to a place where we've given in again and again and again, and we've fallen again and again and again. And we feel like Paul in Romans 7 where we hate the things, yet we do the very things we hate. We look at it and we think about it and we try to resist it and we try to fight it, but yet we give in and we hate ourselves for it and we go through a cycle over and over and over again. And so let me ask you a question. Are you here this morning, brother, sister, doubting that your faith is real because you have been fighting and losing to temptation for a long time? Are you here this morning feeling like you are ready to give up Because you have been fighting a battle you don't feel like you could ever win. Let's look to Jesus whom the book of Hebrews says, he who was in every respect tempted as we were, yet was without sin. And let's see how the enemy attacks us and if we have any hope to win this battle. Matthew chapter four, verse one through 11, the words of our God say this. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone, only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights fasting, meaning he didn't eat anything, he didn't drink anything. So to say that he was hungry is a bit of an understatement. I can't go four hours, sometimes four minutes without a snack. And so he's hungry. He's at his weakest. He's vulnerable, and that is exactly when the enemy strikes. But notice the first words out of the devil's mouth. He comes to Jesus when he's vulnerable, and he says, if. If you are the son of God, if you're really the son of God, notice what he's done. He has called into question that Jesus is really the son of God. He's called into question that God is his father, which is interesting because literally a few verses before what we just read, Jesus was baptized, right? And in Jesus' baptism, what happens? But John baptizes him in that the clouds part and the voice of the Father comes down and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's like that moment in the Lion King. You got any Lion King fans in here? All right. When Simba needs that, that reminding of who he is and Mufasa comes in the clouds and he says, you are my son, the one true king. That's the best Mufasa I got. And it's that kind of clear, uh, intense declaration that God gave to Jesus. You are my son, and I am pleased with you. You're my boy. So not only has the devil questioned if he really is the son of God, but then he's actually questioned the very word of God. He's questioned whether or not God is a liar. And this isn't the first time that Satan has done this. Remember, all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, when he comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, what does he say? The first words out of his mouth, did God really say? Did he really say you're not supposed to eat the fruit? Did he really say? See, the devil wants you to doubt what God says, doubt his goodness, doubt his intentions, doubt that he is who he says he is and that he can do what he says he can do. So we see the next line, the devil says, well, if you're the son of God, if that's really true, then command these stones to become loaves of bread. So not only is he questioning his sonship, but he's actually questioning, okay, if you are, let's just assume for a minute you are the son of God, then your father is just not a very good father because you're out here starving to death and you have the power to turn stones to bread and you're not doing it. He must not love you. He must not provide for you. He must not be a very good father because he gave you this power. Doesn't he want you to turn these to bread? Isn't that what he wants? Doesn't he want you to be filled? Doesn't he want you to be satisfied? See, that's exactly what Adam and Eve believed in the garden. Adam and Eve believed that God was withholding from them, that God had some secret, something that would satisfy them, that would would change them, and that he was keeping it from them. And if they would only eat from the fruit, then they would have it. Do you see the lie? The lie that says the laws of God are here only to keep you from having the pleasures of the world. God has all these rules, right? And all these rules are just meant to keep you from having fun, keep you from enjoying the world. It's a lie that says, 
Guys, it's the 21st century. Those are old and out of date, and no one thinks that way anymore. Come into the new. You see, we were created by God with deep desires in our body and in our souls that are longing to be filled. We have been created with desires and needs for food and for drinks and for relationships and for sex and for fun and for joy. And the demonic forces want you to believe that God has made all of these laws to keep those things from you as if God wanted you to suck it up and to prove your devotion to him by not enjoying the things of the world, enjoying the things that he's made, and that you've got to go without and be like a monk in a monastery, purging every ounce of desire in you for anything. But this could be further from the truth. God has laws not to keep you from having things that will make you happy, that will satisfy and fulfill you. God has laws to keep you from destroying yourself with the things that allure you into death. Like the call of the sirens, these beautiful creatures with beautiful voices that are so mesmerizing. As we hear them, the wonder and the, that, that in, entices us to come and to taste the song that they sing that lures us in and promises to fulfill us. One of my favorite bands is the Grey Havens. And in the Grey Havens, they have a song about sirens. And they say this, a guy on a boat going to face the sirens that says, Take out your sharpest sword and suit of armor so I can be ready to fight. But I pause one last time, one more taste of the sound, and then I'll cut these sirens down. But as they sang, I forgot they were deaf. And so I brought them my heart to be filled, and I followed them. You see, the reason God calls things sin is not to keep you from enjoying good things, but rather to keep you from destroying yourself by going after them. Adam and Eve realized this the moment they ate from the fruit, that everything between them and around them and in them was broken. In that moment, they knew that the promised results of the devil were a lie. No one gets this better than C.S. Lewis. Everyone at Volvo just laughed because I talk about C.S. Lewis a lot. But no one gets this better than him, honestly. And you've probably heard this quote or this idea before, but it's the best. He says, listen, our desires, God doesn't think they're too strong. It's not like God is looking at you going, you want too much. He actually thinks you don't want enough. Your desires are too weak. He doesn't think you actually want enough. He says, you are peddling around with whatever temptation is yours, whether it's pornography or drinking or whatever the case may be. He says, that's like you just playing in the mud in the slums and you're just like playing in the mud and it's all great. And God is saying, listen, let me take you to Hawaii. Let me take you and let us experience the wonder of my creation. Stop playing in the mud. Let me take you over here. Stop desiring the weak things. Your desires actually aren't strong enough. Want more. Don't don't accept the counterfeit. Take the deeper, richer thing that I have offered to you. You see, while the demonic forces tell you that God is holding out on you, God is saying, no, I created you in this particular way to want these things to be filled, and I alone know how to fill you. And so Jesus looks to Satan, and he quotes the word of God back to him, and he, Jesus looks at Satan, and he says, God is all satisfying. He provides exactly what I need. God is the giver of life and joy, and he fills me in a way that no temporary bite of bread ever could. You see, it's no coincidence that with both Adam and Jesus, 
the devil tempts them with food. It's no coincidence because the devil, the easiest way he gets to us is at our base desires. You see, God made you to need and enjoy good food. And so the devil tempts you to overeating, overindulging. God made you and designed you to need and enjoy rest. And so the devil tempts you with laziness and apathy. God made you to enjoy sex inside of marriage. It's deep and rich, and so the devil tempts you to twist it and to want the cheap counterfeits of pornography and adultery and homosexuality. You see, the enemy takes God's good gifts and he twists them to hurt you instead of bless you. He takes the good gifts of God and he perverts them, he twists them to destroy you instead of bless you. The enemy tempts you with immediate self-gratification. You remember, I remember growing up and there was this commercial and it's just like seared on my brain. J.G. Wentworth, 877-CASH-NOW. It's my money and I want it. He'd be so proud. That is seared in all of our brains from childhood. But that's who we are. It's ours. We want stuff and we want it now. We don't want to wait. We want it now. The enemy whispers in your ear, why would you wait all of those years to get a spouse to have sex when you can just pull it up on your phone and have it now? Why wait? He doesn't tell you that it's a cheap, shallow imitation or that you'll get hooked. He doesn't tell you that it'll literally rewire your brain or that it will cause problems in your marriage. He doesn't tell you that it's only the first stop because it will quickly become not enough and you'll need more and more and more and more. And ever so slowly, you will find yourself in a place you never imagined you would be because a taste turned into a whole meal. Don't take the quick, shallow imitation. Don't settle for the substitute or the perverted, twisted thing. Stay in the will of God. Trust God's will and God's plan that he wants to give you good gifts. He's a good father who wants to give you good gifts and he wants to give, you, give them to you in the way that he designed them because they're deeper and richer and they don't destroy you, but they bless you. And so the devil fails to see Jesus fall. He succeeded with Adam, but he, he, did, he failed with Jesus, and so he's going to try another trick. Verses five and six, we see that the devil takes Jesus to the top of the temple. And he quotes the Bible to him, and he says, jump. And it's interesting. We read this, and we're like, I don't understand what's so alluring or enticing about jumping off a tall building. It doesn't seem fun. So what's going on there? Well, the devil quotes a particular passage to Jesus, two passages, that are talking about how God will protect his Messiah, how God will protect his Messiah. And so when the devil comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God again, prove it. Prove it. Jump off the building. And if God catches you, not only will you know, but everyone around you will know who you are. And then you won't have to go through all the people not believing you. You won't have to go through all the slander. You won't have to go through all the enemies who are going to doubt you and, and, and seek to kill you. They'll all know that you're the son of the living God. Just go ahead and jump off. And if you are who you say you are, if you are the son of God, he'll catch you. So go ahead and do it. Go ahead. You see, it's more than just jumping off a building it's vindication. It's being right and everyone knowing you were right. You see, every one of us in this room have felt that. 
when you know you're right about something and everyone else thinks you're wrong and you go home and you start arguing in your head with them and you win every argument, right, because they're just morons. And if only people could see the world the way you see it. And it's just driving you crazy until you want to explode. It's like how your children feel when they come and they plead their case why they should be able to do this or that and you say no and they go, why not? This is all the great reasons. And you say, because I said so. And they're like, just dying on the inside because they're like, I presented a great argument. I should be able to watch this show past my bedtime because of A, B, and C, because I said so. Have you ever felt wronged by someone you wanted everyone else to know the pain they caused you? Have you ever been in a bad situation and you wanted everyone to know that it was not your fault? Have you ever just wanted to explode because no one understood things the way you did? Have you ever had the enemy whisper in your ear, just go ahead, let them have it. You're right, they're wrong. Go ahead and lay into them. I've been to enough church business meetings to know sometimes we listen to that, prom- that lie. Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse and you know they're dead wrong and they know they're wrong, but you take the knife and twist it a little bit to make sure that they know that you know that they're wrong and you're right and you're high and mighty and you're going to be the one to extend forgiveness to them. But they need to know they were wrong. I was right. You see, vindication is a powerful thing and nobody wants to be thought of as being wrong or at fault or not believed. So often it's the reason that we go onto social media and we just start ranting about stuff. We get angry and we want to be right. And so we get on and we rant about our political views and how idiotic the people on the other side are. And we just, like, we're going to convince the world. Like anybody's going to read our eight-paragraph post. We rant about people who have hurt us and wronged us. And we go on and we just emotional baggage on Facebook so everyone can read it. Because they got to know what they did to me and that I was in the right. Or sometimes we get on there and we just start ranting about Jesus because we want everyone to know we believe the truth and somehow we think that people are going to read that and go, oh, I gotta believe now. I need to be saved. When actually people read that and it pushes them further away from Jesus. Sometimes even when we talk about Jesus to people and we wanna share the gospel with them, we get into arguments and debates with them and we get more concerned with being right than leading them to Jesus. You see, The devil tried the first temptation on Adam and it worked and it failed on Jesus and so he tries the second one. He tried it earlier on Israel. Remember when Israel came out of of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea and they were in the wilderness for 40 years? He tried this on them and it it worked on them when they were in the wilderness and they saw the Red Sea part and they saw God make water from a rock and bread from heaven. But Israel was thirsty again and they said, is the Lord among us or not? And they demanded that he would give them more water. And see, they failed their test. But Jesus knew that. And Jesus responds to the devil from the same text of that story as if to say, you tricked Adam and you tricked Israel, but you won't trick me. I know who I am. I know who my father is. And I don't need anyone else to know the truth. I know the truth. My father knows the truth. And that's all I need. See, there are some of you in this room And you struggle believing that God really loves you because you look at all of the failings of your past and of your present and you think, how could God love someone like me? 
And so you want proof. You want to jump off the temple and see if God will catch you. You look and you search your life to, to see blessing. Because if you can find blessing, if you can find answered prayers, that means God's on your side. You lay in your bed every night praying the sinner's prayer again and again. God, forgive me if I didn't mean it enough last night. I mean it enough tonight. Hoping that it'll take. You look for the sign that God would prove his love for you. But you fall for the lie of the enemy who thinks God's got to prove it to you. The enemy called the accuser who comes to accuse you of all wrongdoing, who comes to say, God couldn't love you. Look at you. You're a mess. I mean, everybody else, they've got their faults, but they've got most of their life in order. You, you're just, let's look at you. You go back to the same temptations again and again. You fall again and again. How could God love you? And we listen to that accusation. And we want God to prove otherwise. And we live in fear and we live in worry and we live in shame. But here's the interesting thing. We look for signs and we look for proofs and we want to jump off a building and see if God will catch us. But God's already proved his love for you in the most dramatic, lavish way possible. That he knew all of your sin, past, present, and future, and still he sent Jesus to die on a cross, to be brutally executed. He poured out his wrath and his anger on his son instead of you, demonstrating his love for you. What other sign do you need? That Jesus would go through a literal hell for you. And so why, when you struggle now, would he, be, would he give up on you? Would he quit on you? When he's already done this for you. It doesn't make sense, but we listen to the lie. It's like, I have three kids. One of them's not walking yet, but he's starting to pull up on stuff, right? And it would be like me looking at him pulling up and trying to balance and fall for a minute and go, are you serious? Your sisters were way past this by now. Are you, are you kidding me? They were running at 11 months. What are you doing just pulling up? Let's go, buddy. That's not the way God works. God looks at us falling, trying to pull ourselves up. And he says, yeah, man. Yeah, like when I go to pull him up and I put my little fingers out and he picks up and he, and he can hover for just a second before he falls, I go, yes, give me five. You know, because he can't have five yet. That's my boy. He's going to be a running back. And that's what God looks at us and he does. When we fall and we struggle and we hit the ground and we get back up and say, I'm going to try again. He goes, yes, come on, grab my fingers. We'll do this together. He's not angry at you. He loves you. He's proven it on the cross. He went through hell for you. Don't think he's going to give up on you. So this temptation fails too. Jesus doesn't give in. And so the devil tries the third one in verses 8 and 9. The devil takes Jesus up on top of this mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And it's interesting, all the kingdoms of the world are coming to Jesus. They're his or his inheritance, right? But the devil says, listen, in order to get these, you know you're going to have to be betrayed by your friends. You're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to die. You're going to have to be humiliated. You're going to be tortured. All these horrible things, I'll give them to you now at a cheaper price. Just bow down and worship me. You can have them all now and not have to go through all that hard stuff. Just bow down and worship me. It's the temptation of instant gratification. It's the quick and easy way. It's the, it's the way we get stuff that we think is going to make us happy. 
It's when we cheat on a test. It's stealing. It's making others look bad so that we stay on the inner circle. It's making others look bad so that they get passed up for the promotion and we get it. It's buying the house that you think, even though your marriage is a wreck, the house will make you happy. And even though you can't afford it, you do it because it's all you got. It's the reason you max out your credit card on clothes and shoes and on trips to take your kids and grandkids on because if they just love you, maybe that'll be enough. Growing up, my, my, one of my mom's best friends, we grew up with, with her and her kids, and, and she, was very, she was a normal person. She was not an evil person. She's not a bad person. Still is not. But we grew up in Little League together, and it was years before they realized that she, the tre- she was a treasure and she had been taking a 10 here and a 20 there and a 50 there and a 100 there. It was years before they realized that she had taken tens of thousands of dollars. She wasn't a bad person. She didn't go in there wanting to do that, but she heard the call of the sirens that said, it'll be easier to pay your bills. Just take that 20. It'll be easier. You can get that car. You can finally get that new car and stop driving that old one, and it'll be easier. Just take that 100. And it began to add up and add up until eventually she was caught and had to go to jail and leave her three children at home. She believed the lie of the siren's call of the devil that it would be enough, it was quick and it was easy and it promised her things, but in the end, it lied. You see, this final temptation of Jesus, we understand as modern Western people because we love stuff. We want things for free and we want them now. Remember in college, I had a professor who who, uh, wanted us to debate what did it look like to be mature. We debated for an hour and then he gave us his answer and he said, that maturity was the ability to put off pleasure knowing it will be better or more, lie, more wise later. To put off a pleasure until later. And so when the devil comes in and says, you should take that new car, it doesn't matter that you don't have the money for it, it'll make you feel good. Maturity says in the gospel, it can wait till I can afford it, I don't need it. When the devil whispers and says, go ahead, have sex, who's it going to hurt, Right? It'll be worth it, it'll feel good. And maturity says, no, there will be emotional baggage, there will be pain, there will be hurt, there will be complications, it's not worth it, I'll wait for the deeper, richer thing. You see, the devil and Jesus stand on top of the mountain looking out at the whole world, and the devil has made his last bid. You can have it all, no pain, no suffering, just, just hit your knees. And Jesus turns and he looks at the devil, and in verse 10 he says, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. You see, Jesus placed his trust in this father. The father's plan might take longer. It might be difficult, but it'll be worth it. Because my father is good, and he loves me, and he's working all things for my good, even when I don't see them. The road may be difficult, it may be bumpy, but the journey will be worth it, because in the end, I get eternal joy with my father. There are no shortcuts, and no amount of stuff that can satisfy me, Only my father can. Let me ask you, is that your heartbeat? Is your heartbeat that in the end, the only thing that will truly satisfy you is God and that everything else is a cheap imitation until you know that God is more than just this guy up in the sky that's got a bunch of rules that wants to keep you from having things until you realize that he's not just the king who is trying to demand things of your life until you see him differently than that You're always going to think that he's trying to keep you from things and that the devil's stuff is better. The only way you begin to see God as the true giver of life and satisfying and giving good gifts is when you see him as father. 
Remember what God said over Jesus in his baptism? He said, you are my son in whom I am pleased. Did you know that when you put your faith in Christ, when you trust in Christ, that God says the same thing to you? Did you know that God looked at you and he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I am so proud of you. I am so pleased in you. He says that to you when you're in Christ. Did you know that? That he's not looking to keep good things from you. He's looking to be a good father, to give you good gifts. He's not trying to give you rules to keep you from good things, but rather he's trying to keep you from destroying yourself. He wants you to have food and drink and relationships and sex. And he says, if you have it this way, it'll destroy you. But if you have it my way, it will spiral up into greater enjoyment. And so how do we fight temptation? How do we fight back so that we can have joy in the things God has made and not settle for the cheap imitations of the enemy? Three ways. One, we need to remember who our true enemy is. We cannot see our enemy. Our enemy is not those on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Our enemy is all around us and we can't see him. Our enemy is seeking to devour us. We need to see sin as the enemy and we need to see the demonic realm as the enemy, forces that are real, that they're not rare occurrences but that they're everyday realities coming against us. We need to see that we don't just have struggles, that we're not just humans who make mistakes but that we are people who are being, who are in a battle for life and death, for heaven and hell. Sin is the enemy. Two, you have to know you're vulnerable and stay away. If you're an alcoholic, don't go to the bar. I had a friend ask me this week, said I've got two friends who, who, who live, to, who are often sleep over at each other's house. They're in a relationship and they often spend the night. I said, is that okay? I said, well, the, first of all, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not sleep over at your boyfriend's house. But I know I'm not strong enough to go sleep at the house of the woman that I love, did not sleep with her. I don't know any man who would be. And so don't put yourself in that situation. Yeah, maybe you did it one time, but keep doing it, you're going to fall. And so know where you're vulnerable and stay away. Don't set yourself up for failure. And three, stop fighting alone. When your struggles and your temptations are only known to you, you will fail. You don't stand a chance. When you keep everything inside and hide it from everyone else, you don't stand a chance. In verse 11, after Jesus was tempted, do you know what happened? It says, the angels came and were ministering to Jesus. If Jesus needed help, how much more do you and I need help? If Jesus needed ministering to, how much more do you and I need help? And so how much more do we need to go find a good, trusted friend and spill it all, put it all on the table and say, brother, help me. Help me. I need help. You see, no battle was ever won with a single soldier. Battles are won with armies. And you need one in your life. There's one more. If I ended this sermon right now, and just giving you some practical helps on how to fight temptation. You might go home and you might begin to see the devil as your enemy and you might begin to fight him with new vigor. You might see that it's not just struggles but actually temptation and you might begin to take this fight seriously. You might see it with new eyes and that would all be great, but it's not enough. Because maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year, you will hear the, the siren call of the devil and it will allure you and you will fall again. 
And when that happens, what do you do? When that happens, what do you do? You see, we must understand why this whole temptation thing is happening in the first place. That it's more than just the random story. As Matthew writes, it's not just like, okay, well, this is what happened next. But the, but the text says that the spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led there. Why? Because Adam was tested in the garden and Adam failed. Israel was tested in the wilderness for 40 years and Israel failed. You and I are tested daily and we fail. And so Jesus, knowing he's got to go into his own garden, he's got to go into his own wilderness, and he's got to go and face down the devil, and he can't fail. He's got to pass the test in the garden. He's got to be tempted every way that we were and yet not sin. He's got got to be obedient to God. Do you know why? Because it took more than the cross to save you. Because forgiveness is not enough to save you. You've got to be perfect. You've got to have the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so here's what Jesus did. He lived as a little child for you, and he always obeyed his parents because he knew you couldn't. Jesus lived as a teenager for you, and he never gave in to temptation because he knew you couldn't. Jesus lived as an adult, never sinning because he knew you couldn't. And not only does he take your sin and bear it on the cross, but he gives his perfect obedience, his perfect life to you as if you did it yourself. And so if you're in Christ, you can say, I was a child who always obeyed. I was a teenager who never strayed. And I was an adult who was always perfect. Justification is not just as if I had never sinned, but it's also just as if I had always obeyed. When you're in Christ, everything true about Jesus is true about you. That's why he can look at you and say, you are my son, and in you I am pleased. Jesus is not trying to hold gifts from you. He's not trying to hold back from you. He wants to give you all good gifts. And so Jesus doesn't just go to the cross. He lived his life for you. He went to the wilderness with you. He stared down the devil for you. And that's how on your worst days, He's still pleased with you. And so sometimes we need that reminder. Sometimes we need, like Mufasa, reminding Simba who he was. We need reminding daily who we are, that we are not just aliens and strangers and orphans. We are those who have been adopted by the king of glory. We are sons and daughters of God. We are righteous in his sight, blameless. And on your worst day, at your lowest low, God says, you're my boy, you're my girl, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I could be no more proud of you than I am right now. In Christ, you need to be reminded of that because you do the same thing I do. You trick yourself, you hear the lies of the devil, and you think, how could he ever love me? And you need to see that not only did he die for you, but he lived for you. He went to the wilderness for you. He was tempted and never fail, so that even though you're tempted and fall, he'll never give up on you. You see, you will never defeat temptation until you realize this truth. You will never defeat temptation until you realize that if you never defeat temptation, God will love you anyway. You'll never defeat it. You'll never defeat the call of the siren until you realize that if you never win the battle, he's won it for you, and he'll still love you. No matter how many mistakes you make, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's their starting place. You start there, and the battle can be won. 
and the battle can be won. You must remember who you are in Christ, that you are a son or a daughter of the living God, and no mistakes can change that. There may be some of you in this room right now, and you've done religious stuff, you've come to church, maybe you've believed in God, but maybe you think it's kind of all silly. But you know how messed up you are, you know about your secret sins, you know all the stuff in your life, and you know you've never really bowed your knees to Jesus. You know you've never really experienced the kind of forgiveness that I'm talking about where it's not just that you get forgiven, but you get righteousness. The guy looked at you as perfect even though you're not. And you, you've been wallowing in the mud thinking that these things would satisfy you, and you think, maybe he's right. Maybe these things feel good for the moment, but there's something deeper and richer, and you want to trade in the counterfeit for the real thing. You can come this morning, and Jesus will take you. Warts, stains, faults, and all. And maybe there's some of you in this room right now, and you've been battling temptation for years and years and years, and you have been failing for years and years and years, and you feel like the devil has his clutches in you and there's no hope. But brother, sister, remember the gospel this morning. Remember, you are his son and daughter and he's pleased with you. Your sins have been paid for and he lived for you and he's given it to you. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, that's yours. You can climb up out of the pit because Jesus has already won the victory for you. There's hope this morning. Guys, no matter where you are, Three ways to respond this morning. One, come up here and pray if you need to. Two, there'll be ministers up here. I'll be up here. We would love to pray with you. I'm not your priest. You don't have to confess anything to me. Jesus is your priest. But I'd love to pray for you. Just hug you. Three, stand there and sing with a deeper conviction about how thankful you are to the Jesus who lived for you and died for you. Respond how you need to. Father, we come to you this morning and we're thankful that Jesus lived a perfect life for us, that he died a sinner's death for us, and that no matter how far we stray, no matter how deep the clutches of the devil are in us, no matter how long we've been in it, you love us with a love we can't comprehend. God, this morning, would you give strength to those that are in this room who are children of wrath right now, who are aliens and foreigners to the promise of God, who are orphans, not having a family. I'm talking to you. If you're in this room right now and you are far from God, I'm talking to you. And if that's you right now, know there is a family waiting for you. There is a father like you've never known waiting for you to embrace you, to bring you into his family. And he's paid the cost. God, give them strength to come. Raise them from the dead. Give them new life this morning. The trade-in counterfeits for the real substance of what you offer. And God, for the one in this room who feels like they cannot win, give them victory because you've won the victory for them. God, we thank you. We love you. Move in us now as we pray. In Jesus' name, all people said.